People say, oh, I went to a party, room full of strangers, and I yelled out, how about that awful abortion law? It's so evil. And then everyone <laughs> threw their cups at me. I was clearly doing the work of the Lord. Uh, you know, the world will hate you. They won't understand you. And I say, no, 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 you're just being an idiot. Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical, and joyful. Today's show is being pro-life today, in a world where everyone thinks that Christians are lunatics and killjoys and a little bit strange on the side, how can we be more effective at promoting a culture of life? I'm your host, Peter Holmes, and today I'm joined by my guest, Brendan Malone, who is the director of LifeNet New Zealand. He's been working full-time in pro-life marriage, family ministry for the last 14 years. He's married to Katie. They have five children. And Brendan has a background in communications and media training. Welcome, Brendan. Hey, how are you, man? Good to be with you. And with you. Brendan and I first met in a when we were both speakers at Hearts of Flame conference, which we've been back to a number of times since. Uh, and, and he has too. He's an old hand there. And uh, we've enjoyed lots of conversations over a wee drop here and there. That's been a good thing. But it's good to catch up with him. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you that if you like the show, you should subscribe on your podcast app and that way you won't miss an episode. So let's get into it. What do we mean by a culture of life? Well, yeah, that's the big question, isn't it? Because I think one of the temptations is to think that being pro-life is simply about being opposed to certain things. And it's very easy to forget that the reason we might say a no to euthanasia or to abortion is because we say a much bigger yes to something far more profoundly good, true and beautiful. And really that yes is to authentic self-giving love. And so we say yes to that and that requires us to say no to certain things. And, and in doing that, we find authentic freedom. So really a culture of life is not about being anti-abortion or anti-euthanasia. If it's lived out authentically, it's about actually living a culture that is proactive, that is actually building something, and that, as I said, is focused on an outward uh, self-giving love, really. That's what I think a culture of life boils down to. Yeah, I mean, I think the official sort of thing from the church is defending life from conception to natural death. But what that means is not just defending it, but actually promoting it, seeing that life flourishes in all these stages. Now, one of the negative kind of um, impressions that some people have, perhaps because of negative media attention, but sometimes because of our own actions, is that we are we only sort of pop up when we're protesting something. You know, we only sort of pop into the public eye when we're we're complaining about something or going against something. Um, and the, the, usually the accusation is, where are you guys when it gets tough? You know, when these tough decisions have to be made, like, are you going to help out with the really tough situations? And the answer, as far as I can see, is that most Christians would say yes. We're, that we're actually there for those things too. It's just not in the public eye. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I think so, absolutely. And it's a, it's a, what you might call a difficult PR cell because <laughs> people love drama and they yes. love they love dramatic tension. If you've got a dichotomy, two groups opposed, you know, yes. so the government versus those pro-lifers, et cetera, then, then you've got the recipe for ratings. But it's yep. a bit more uh, or a bit less interesting to go and watch people living out uh, I think it was at T.S. Eliot called it the 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 those sort of the the ordinary life and and the way in which we owe so much the world owes so much to those people who live out ordinary mundane lives but in doing that they build an authentic culture and so that stuff's not as interesting but absolutely and I think this is a challenge for us too is 
to ensure that when we are saying no, because there are moments you have to speak the truth and you have to speak up loudly against things, that that's never the sole form of pro-life action in our life. That must always come on the back of, and probably be in many ways, a minor aspect of living a much full and complete culture of life and everything else we say yes to. Yeah, it's going back to the old adage, which is attributed to St. Francis, you know, speak the gospel with your actions. You know, yes. do do the gospel first, and then maybe when it's time to speak, people might take you seriously. But we have to come to the, the reality that people don't seem to be listening, or perhaps because of the reasons you mentioned just then, the media, that there's no ratings in promoting something that's good, true, and beautiful. Perhaps sometimes the media and government have an agenda going on. Sometimes they just don't see the point in it for them in promoting something. So would you say it's accurate that government and media don't seem to be listening to the pro-life message? Um, I would say certainly in the experience here in New Zealand, and, and this is a this is a, a place where I'm actively involved, and so I'm not just speaking in a sort of conspiratorial or I think I've got my <laughs> suspicions kind of way. I've I've seen this and in, in ways that people probably wouldn't believe. Um, I, I recently had a, a situation where a very experienced journalist who's not, you wouldn't call particularly pro-life in New Zealand, uh, but the comment from this particular journalist uh, in an interview setting where I was involved with helping someone in, in an interview, that was that they were shocked by their colleagues' behaviour. We've had a very extreme abortion bill passed through our parliament in the last couple of months. And 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 the comment from this journalist was they were shocked by the behaviour of their colleagues on this issue, that they're not simply uh, not doing due diligence, but they are actively promoting and fighting for a bill instead of giving it proper media coverage. And there's no doubt within government as well that, that these, these issues are real, uh, it's not conspiratorial to say this. There's certainly for some politicians, you could say, I think there's an element of perhaps they just, they aren't, haven't been particularly well formed themselves and they think that being pro-choice is sort of just this humane middle ground. But there's no doubt there is a very sizable and and I think even growing group of politicians who have a staunch commitment to these things, almost like a value set, and that they are doing everything they can to try and get legislation passed to to honour what they believe uh, should be the norm in society. There, there is, there's, there seems to be uh, a narrative there that suggests that if we're pro-birth, which is what sometimes I'm accused of in terms of being pro-life, pro-birth, that we're actually anti-mother. So in other words, that there's a sort of a lack of compassion for the mum involved. And in some respects, now I'm not saying this is justified, but in some respects, we play into the hands of that narrative. If we argue in an angry way, if we use imagery um, you know, narrative, rhetoric, which which seems to, like, for instance, saying abortion is murder, for example, seems to play into a narrative of being non-compassionate to those people who found themselves in very difficult situations. The, the risk here is that that we play into a game of uh, where we sort of water down the truth, if you like, looking for what, what you might call clever PR strategies. Now, there's a place for PR and for strategic communications, that's for sure. But in my experience, I'm not convinced that actually there's a long game in this because we're living in a culture that can be very superficial and doesn't communicate well and rationally. And I don't think we want to get into the superficiality and sort of these vacuous talking points that, that never really get to the heart of the matter. However, there is a prudential reason why I think that 
for example, for me, I'm unflinching when I talk about abortion. It is the deliberate taking of life. It is the deliberate ending of a, of a human life. And, yep. uh, and we should never shy away from telling that truth. However, the term murder is very loaded. And there's a reason why I'm cautious about that term. Uh, is And that is because a lot of women who've experienced the pain of abortion, straight away, what they hear in that is, you're accusing me of being a murderer. And what we know because is there's a, a motive, lot of Because there's a motive implied in that, Yes, it? that's right. That's right. What, what I really, my big focus is trying to get people to realize that really what you've got is a system that preferences abortion because it's convenient for the system. You have got uh, uh, abortionists who should know better, who are the ones who actually carry out the act. And the mothers involved in the vast majority of these situations, they are coerced by circumstances or people around them. And a very few of them are actually making a choice. In fact, in some ways, they are just as much a victim of the mm-hmm. of the setup, if you like. And, and often what you find is behind the scenes, someone who's almost never fingered is the the parents the 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 boyfriend or the husband who's not supporting them you know that those kinds of uh, persons behind the scenes who are actually putting immense pressure on and I, I think I've I've done some counselling in this area and and um, almost everybody who's told me they've had an abortion utters the words I had no choice yes so the, yeah. ironic for the pro choice movement is that they, yeah. they almost everyone who's taken up this they say I had no choice. Well, well, it's also not. It's it's not. It's even uh, worse now in the sense that a lot of them they were actively coerced. Um, I, I've so many yes. stories of people who were driven to clinics and told, "I will leave you, or we'll kick you out of home unless you do this." Yeah. Uh, and, and not just that, but now the more liberal and and relaxed you make your abortion laws, the faster that pathway towards abortion becomes, and the less safeguards there, there are in place to stop that. And so it's it's the whole pro-choice movement actually is doing the very opposite of what it's claiming to do. And and one other thing I'd say, by the way, is on that point of are you pro-birth, because that's now a bit of a, a common retort that you get or an, an accusation. Is, yes. Yeah, I say to people, look, uh, of course I am, because I'm pro-life. It's, it's <laughs> I, I, often, I often, you can't separate those two things. It's kind of like, um, I use this analogy, imagine that you were at a, some sort of church picnic and you were standing there, you, you've broken your legs recently, so you're on two crutches, and you're standing there talking to a couple of other adults and there's some kids swimming in a swimming hole behind you in the river. Now you can see the kids, those other two adults can't, and you realize one of those kids is starting to get into some silent drowning, that they're starting to struggle and you know what's happening. So you turn to those adults and you say, we need to save that child. Now imagine what you'd say if, if those adults turned to you and said, well, are you really pro-saving that child? Are you gonna pay for its lunch after we've saved it? Are, are you gonna pay for its education? <laughs> you're just, you know, you're just anti-drowning, aren't you? And you're like, well, of course I am. It's the same thing. It's not they're not separate things, you know? You've got to be you've got to be that. And that really it comes down to the presumption that you're dealing with a human life there. And lots and lots of talk about all of the emotive circumstances around it. And there are many, and there are huge emotions around it. And there, it should not be discounted. And certainly there's a huge amount of effort that needs to be made in helping people make the right mm. decisions and coming to the right calls. And in, in fact, making it easy for them to do so. Yeah. Well, and I think too, that, that we, we often say in the pro-life movement, we're very fond of saying over here, there's three things we like to say. Number one is love them both. Both lives matter. And we really believe that our work is about building a future culture where abortion is un- unthinkable and unnecessary. Yeah, unnecessary and unthinkable. Yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. I'd agree with that. And and in the sense that rather than and again, you don't you don't tend to win the battle by legislating against something. 
you 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 win by i mean we've made lots of laws for example against domestic abuse um mm. against all these sorts of things and yet they're on the rise because people who are in desperate situations or who for various reasons are seem unable to control themselves in certain circumstances aren't going to be prohibited by laws we need to change people's hearts and we need to get you know train people to deal with the situations appropriately now that's that leaving that aside we've talked about the basis of the pro-life thing and it's an unjust accusation to say we don't care there are uncaring ways to communicate uh, and there are some ways that in our frustration sometimes when we're frustrated with people not understanding the true issues and if we genuinely believe as we do that there's a human life involved of course that by the way that conversation you described just then you know, if the kid's drowning, I'm not going to stop for a long, quiet debate with you know, with someone about whether or not we should save them. I'm more likely to push them out of the way and try and save the child. But um, that that kind of urgency can sometimes lead us to say things which which are unwise or hurtful, and you know, come across as sometimes as ac- accusations or unhelpful things. And the uncaring label doesn't actually help us win the person in the end. They don't help us to win over. And there are a huge amount of people who've actually already been through the abortion uh, mill. They've been victims themselves of this industry. And uh, there is a, we've got a lot of, you know, work to do if we're going to be winning their hearts and minds too. Because once someone's there, if they think that we regard them as murderers and that's all we think, then we're not going to, you know, we're not going to get any headway in that respect, are we? Yeah, no, exactly right. And I think this is where there's um there's a couple of points that I always like to say to people when I'm talking about this issue is, number one is that, yes, you must speak, uh, first of all, with compassion. And you must always remember that there but for the grace of God could go you or I. I have stuff in my own history that, uh, that could have very easily ended up in that same situation. In fact, it almost did at one point years and yep. years ago. So I, yep. I, you've got to have that level of compassion where you realise you don't know who you're talking to and what their backstory is. That's the first thing. Um, second thing that I say to people is that don't be afraid of first reactions. This is often what taints people's communication perhaps a little bit is they, they think, well, if I say this, people will react badly so I won't say it. I say, say it with love. Build a relationship where you earn the right to say that thing. And then when you say it, don't be afraid to keep loving the person, even if the initial reaction is one of anger. And and what I've seen so many times, look, I know a guy here in New Zealand, this guy, he's not even a Christian. He's very pro-life. He's a tradesman and run a very successful building <laughs> company. He's not a counsellor, not even right. close. Now, this is a guy who his own, his own staff, you know, quick look busy, here comes the boss because otherwise you get, you know, fired sort of thing. That's how he's, he's you know, he's, he's a real straight shooter. Now, he's, I know of an incident he had where he was driving a van one day that had a pro-life bumper sticker on it and he gets, it's a Saturday morning, he comes out of the premises where he was and there's a lady waiting for him. She's pacing, she's angry and she says, is that your van? He says, yes it is and she got so angry with him and that was her first reaction. She was angry and she was, how dare you, you, you know, this, that, and everything else. And he just looked at her calmly and he said, um, is abortion part of your story? And she stopped. She ended up breaking down and she told him her whole story. By the end of it, she had embraced him. She'd hugged him. She said, thank you so much. No one's ever let me tell my story and listened. And and see, like if a guy like that can do that, I think we can all we can all do mm. that. And so oh, I, the, I think, the I think the key it's to that, that there was that he was listened to her. He listened yes. to her story and he gave it credit. Now there's a, a lady in um, Australia called Melinda Tankard Rice, and she she 
didn't author. She edited a book called Giving Sorrow Words. Yes, which good allowed book. a lot of and people in the book were not necessarily pro-life. Some of them were pro-choice. Some of them were all sorts of things. And they just simply, she allowed them to tell their story about post-abortion grief. Now, it's a story which is not popular because it seems to some who want a particular message to go out that it's, you know, we shouldn't be talking about this because it will put people off abortions. And you say, well, surely in any situation, no matter how good we believe something is, um, I'm not yet met anyone who thinks an abortion is a good thing, but even if we think it's a necessary evil, surely we should be aware of at least one aspect of the, the profound impact that you're talking about. And since it's coming from people across the spectrum, that's a really important uh, message. Yeah. She also has a book called Defiant Birth, which is about that's those right. people who've take, gone against the advice and gone ahead and had yeah. babies. But And again, it doesn't paint it out like it's a nice rosy picture and everything's wonderful. And it does talk about the hardships of it, but it talks about the real experiences. If part of the listening is a huge thing, but you're, you're training people, Brendan, um, if I'm... If I understand your your work right, you're training people to be better spokespersons in the public sphere, in government lobbying, in things like that, aren't you? Yeah, so it's it's a bit of that. Really, my the training that I do really involves first of all situating people into a proper worldview, so they understand the philosophical currents that have been going for hundred years, sorry, hundreds of years that have led people to think about ethics the way they do. And, and and all the people who claim to be sort of neutral and pro-choice or secular out there are not actually neutral. They have uh, very much imbued a whole lot of ideas that come before them. So giving them that context. And then also, how do we understand the, the moral philosophy around abortion ethics? Why is it wrong? How do we respond to those kind of arguments? And then the third layer, if you like, is how do we effectively engage? So that might be media engagement. That might be political engagement. Even how do we as a group of pro-lifers work well together and avoid some of the previous pitfalls that have marked the pro-life movement. You know, the, the disunity and the, the confusion between uniformity and unity. You know, everyone doesn't have to be doing the same thing and on the same page for us to be in unity. And people often mistake those two things. You know, so ha that, that's the sort of the whole gambit yeah. of that. And one thing I'd say too, just in particular, thinking about the post-abortion point you made, because that does really that that really exposes the pro-choice, particularly the militant pro-choice activism, for the fact that it's not as pro-woman as they claim. Because that's one group of women that they actively try and silence. They're all but accused of either being liars or delusional when 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 pro-choice activists say there's no such thing as post-abortion grief. What those women are either liars or delusional, and and, that, and if that is true, and so. What, one thing I think our churches could be doing to help, and this is a simple thing, is every week in your public prayers in your church, if you're a Catholic church, that's the prayers of the faithful, obviously, why not include a prayer that says, we pray for the woman who've experienced the pain of abortion. Now, what, what you're doing is you're praying for those women, and every woman sitting in that congregation who's had an abortion knows these people are praying for me. And that changes the view of who you are and why you are pro-life. Um, yeah, okay. That, that Certainly in the prayers would be one way to do it, but the other would be in the way that you've already mentioned, which is to listen, to actually be listening people yes. rather than arguing people. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a good time for an argument, and there's lots of people who level false accusations, and sometimes they need to be gently met with, with facts and, and careful responses. But most of the time we prove people wrong by our actions. By not being yes. obnoxious, not not coercing yes. people, bribing them, threatening them. Because if we have a problem, for example, with the with the pro-choice people coercing people into abortion, then we want to be not guilty of the same coercion 
in the opposite direction. Yes, that's right. We don't want to be the people who are using, you know, rhetorical tricks or, you know, guilt trips or anything Mm -hmm. like that to try and force people into something. We want them to come to the decision in in full knowledge and full consent to life and and all its joys. Mm. How does that work in media, though? I mean, you you talked about forming the background understanding, and that, of course, forming a person to understand what we're doing is an important part. But then there's there's actual, you know, skills involved, isn't there? Well, that's for sure. And there's look, there's things you can learn about media engagement. I think that one of the biggest things you need to realise with media is you've only got sound bites. You can't unpack, <laughs> you know, and for me, that's so frustrating because I want to unpack a philosophical argument. I want to give you a bit of history. I want to situate you in something deeper. But in the media, I've only got seconds and maybe if I'm lucky, a couple of minutes. So how do I actually uh, speak to the issue or at least open a door? And really what you're doing with media engagement is this. There's only three groups of people you're ever going to be communicating with in the media. The first group is those diehard supporters who are already with you. Too many people get into the media and try and speak to the choir, preach to the choir. The other group at the other end of the spectrum is the diehard opponents who, no matter what you said, they're not willing to change their views right now. Those two groups, they're not the groups you should be communicating with. It's the third larger group in the middle, what we sometimes call the mushy middle, the silent majority. And these are people, if you present yourself in a reasonable and charitable way, are open to saying, oh, I'd never thought of that before. And by the way, in media engagement, that's a victory. If you have someone say, I'd never thought about that, that is a huge victory. So how do I communicate and and how do I bring in perhaps some sound bites that would open up that group of people to realizing there is more to this issue? There's um there's a fellow in the States, and I'm I'm not going to mention his name, but he he runs a, a site called virtuemedia.org, I mm-hmm. think, who does ads in pro-life. And and they're often quite clever in that they're not pejorative, they're not judgmental. But they clearly put forward the positive nature of life and the, in the entire amazing uh, aspect of it. So he's been quite clever in putting those kinds of things forward. I wonder. I mean, do we have the capacity to do that? Is there just too much money involved in it? Um, is it better to be personally involved in talking to the media? What do you think? Well, I think there's there's lots of potential now. We've got something that we've never had before, really, and that's the advantage of social media. Right. Now, of course, there's lots of problems with social media for sure, but <laughs> one of the great advantages for very, very few dollars, you can reach a massive audience around the globe instantly. We've never had that power before. It would cost too much money to do that previously. So that that's a that now we've got to harness that though and use that well. And I've been involved in some campaigns that I think have done that well. Some campaigns I've been involved in where I think maybe I, you know, I look back and think, oh, I should have done that a bit better. But that's the reality of this thing. But what's interesting is that the sort of period we're working through at the moment with COVID actually and and church closures and things, for one thing that has exposed for me as someone who's currently producing all of the live streams for my parish is that there's a big uh, knowledge gap within the church that's that's actually an Achilles heel for us. And, and, and if we were a bit sharper with that technology, we could really be doing some amazing things, I think, at reaching the culture and opening, at least opening the door. That's the key to this. Yeah. Well, yeah, the church isn't, isn't cutting-edge technology usually. It's, it's a funny thing. But to be honest, most things in, the, in history uh, are, are examples of where a, an individual with particular skills or training has seen a need and they've seen that their own capacity matches that need and they've stepped up to do it. Yes. Um, in some respects, we've got to stop looking to 
the church in inverted commas um and you know the bishop should do something about this i'm really the bishop's role is to make sure the sacramental institutional element of the church doesn't fall over and smash its face it's mostly about the keeping that rolling we're supposed to be the ones out in the world you know putting the message out there now it doesn't help if they oppose that but it certainly you know it's not up to them solely it should, you know people with expertise and, and ability should be stepping up and I know I'm not I'm preaching to the choir here because uh, you're out there trying to get them to do it. <laughs> but I mean, tell us a little bit about the work you're doing because I know you're around Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, so a lot of obviously I, uh, when I'm not speaking at conferences and schools and church events and things like that, there's obviously a big part of of my work is is running something uh, in Australia. It's called the Pulse Pro Life Training Week. Uh, we actually started it in New Zealand. It's called Activate over here. It's been going for about eleven years in New Zealand. And, and the New Zealand event spawned the Australian one, believe it or not. So this is one of those instances where actually we did beat you, Pavlova and, and Crowded House, the other one. Um, so, um, so, so um, yeah, um, and, and, and it's sort of gone from strength to strength. And, and there's a, um, I think, the, here's the key for me, and I think you're absolutely spot on when you say that, that, that we need to develop this sort of sense of, of, uh, utilizing skills better with the, when you think about even the church. And I think a big part of that too is perhaps the, the way in which we view or perhaps haven't encouraged enough lay people to recognize that the, the priesthood of the laity is actually supposed to be out in that temporal domain. And that's where we're supposed to take things, consecrate them and make them holy. So we're supposed to get into the media, take it, consecrate it, make it holy. Politics, take it, consecrate it, make it holy. You know, running businesses, all those kind of things. And one of the things I think we've had is a bit of a trap perhaps in the church for the last few decades is this idea that everyone should be in the sanctuary. And we've forgotten that in actual fact, we're supposed to go to the sanctuary, get the bread for the journey, and then go out and get back onto the journey and do our work there. And I think that's that culture has has not necessarily helped us perhaps um, where it could have. But I, I, I think there's plenty of scope and I'm encouraged by what I see happening because I think there's a younger generation coming through who, who understand that. And as I think Benedict would talk about the creative minority, you can see that really starting to form, I think. <laughs> I loved that saying, um, the creative minority. And I, I love the the idea of um, not losing ourselves in this idea of being the remnant, the last few and sort of hunkering yeah. down into a bunker, yeah. but to actually see ourselves, as Christ calls, about salt and light, you know, the getting out there, being that little leaven and that changes the whole loaf kind of thing. That's um, right. Uh, Got to remember that no matter how bad we think things are, um, God was prepared to spare Sodom if there were ten people there, you know, yeah. ten righteous people. Yeah, that's so right. Just we only need a few of us to actually change an entire culture, and we will only change a culture if we can capture people's hearts and minds with a positive vision. Fear works, and this is what I wanted to get to with the public media thing and even the politician thing. Fear seems to work in the short term. It seems to have greater results if you can make people afraid of something. You push them yeah. the other way. But it actually bites us all on the bottom at the end because if if fear is our only motive, then all they have to do is make you afraid of something else. Yes, that's right. Getting people to buy into the the positive, wholesome, complete, and joyful vision of life is almost the only long term strategy that's going to win. Seeing whole life uh, as a beautiful, wonderful thing, in spite of suffering, in spite of hardship, in spite of difficulty. In fact, in some cases, because of it. Yes. But how to communicate this, in some respects, it's almost not possible in the short media grabs that you're talking about. So no, it almost. No, 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 no. And that's the, that's the trap. 
And, and this is the danger I really fear is that we think that if we get the right gimmicky phrase or set of gimmicks or phrases that suddenly everyone will go, ah, oh, now I want to be pro-life. It's actually, a, it's a more complex thing than that. And in one sense, in another sense, it's actually a lot more straightforward and very mundane. It's about living a full culture of life in your sphere of influence. And I think this is where it really, the thing that transforms the world ultimately is and, and creates that space for human flourishing is authentic community, which is obviously built on authentic self-giving love. And it's the one thing that the West has has eroded and has been eroding in the West now for quite some time. And it's one thing that I would suggest drives a culture of death more than anything else. If I can make you uh, an individual in your own little world and you all of a sudden you're, you're effectively isolated. Maybe you've got a, a spouse and a couple of kids, but that's about it. And, and you're struggling away without any sort of wider community, then you're really up against it. And when you find yourself in a situation with an unplanned pregnancy and you've got no community around you, abortion doesn't just look like a choice. It looks like the only option. Uh, if you've got elderly parents and you're struggling and striving away just to pay for your mortgage, working 100 hours each a week just to pay for it, and all of a sudden one of them gets ill and there's a cost involved in that, you start to realise, well, yeah, maybe euthanasia is a more humane and dignified thing. So you see how that loss of community drives all of that culture of death. In fairness, there's also, in in the case of the euthanasia thing, and even in some cases when they present abortion as an option, um, we have a, a disabled child, so when they present abortion as an option to you, often it's not just the financial thing, it's that there's a genuine fear that the person mm. is suffering, that there's going to be some unnecessary suffering involved, and that especially in euthanasia, they're going to die anyway. Why not? Why put them through this lengthy process of pain? So even if someone's and I've, I've met many people who aren't motivated by the money side of it, who just genuinely can't stand watching someone they love go through so much pain. And in a sense, because we have kind of painted a quality of life that is so surrounded by the tingly feelings I'm getting right now, whether I'm yes. enjoying life, quality of life, we call it. Self-gratification. Yeah, but even, or at least absence of pain, at least that. <laughs> yeah, but, yes. And and we, we just can't conceive of there being value in life no. if it's suffering. And so there's a, there's a, I think there's a Christian understanding of suffering, which isn't limited to Christianity, by the way. This is deeply embedded in Judaism as well. Um, this understanding of the, the genuineness of humanity as it struggles through the absurdity and the, and the struggles of life. Well, well, again, again, I would go back. So there's no doubt utilitarian thinking is a big factor here. What is the utility in something? That, yep. There's no doubt that's a factor. I think, again, though, the loss of community is a driver of this as well, because when you're an individual and you're isolated from community, you don't see death as much. You don't deal with the 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 the, the real, ordinary, mundane and icky, challenging business of a hard life. And, and we've, and we've so, actually sanitized ourselves from death, haven't we? Because we don't yes, see that, it. That's we don't right. actually so, physically see bodies. And No, no. And it becomes maybe a bit of fear attached to it, uncertainty. You have ideas in your mind that death is this truly horrific, awful, painful, brutal thing thing. We also lose the sense that my life, I often talk to people about the fact that I view my life as not just uh, uh, something I own, but it is in a sense a debt I owe to my family, including my death, to my family, to my community, that they're supposed to journey with me through that process. But that requires community. 
even your own death is a gift to your your family. And there's an interesting essay on the internet where someone wrote a paper called "I Want to Be a Burden on My Family." Yes, I read that. <laughs> it was right, a fantastic exactly. sort of look at it. Yeah, really good look at the idea of all these people saying, "I don't want to be a burden on the family." He's saying well, the only burden is love, and the only reason you're a burden on anybody because if they didn't care about you, you wouldn't yeah. be a burden at all. They just wouldn't care. But but wanting to be a burden is just the same thing as saying I want to be loved and I want to be someone who's worthy of that love. Well, here's the thing too, that when you slip away from that, you allow the utilitarian, the quality of life, uh, all those things to creep in. And I'm telling you, it's it's you get to a point where, so for example, in Canada, within a couple of months of them legalizing euthanasia back in 2016, a public report had been published by a group of experts and it was widely publicized saying, good news, we can save between 18 and $130 million every, $135 million, I think it was, every single year in healthcare costs because these people won't be consuming them anymore. That's $1.4 billion every 10 years. That is a massive driver. And I often say to people, don't doubt that in the political sphere, how that plays into this issue. Because here in New Zealand, for example, this is years ago, several decades ago, we had an incident where, and this was a, what you call the conservative government, they tried to quietly implement a policy change until someone blew the whistle, where by dialysis treatment, there would be a list of criteria to receive it. And there were 10 types of people who were going to be automatically denied dialysis. And on that list were antisocial behaviours. Uh, if you were older, over 65, automatically denied. Uh, I think disability was on there. They had things like if you'd ever been in prison. And and, and so someone blew the whistle, thank goodness, and, and, and it, the whole thing got revoked. But you, that was not even euthanasia. So you can see how economic drivers very much start to take the fore when love takes a back seat. It's yeah, it's been become a, a fairly hot topic. Not so much now, but early on in the COVID crisis, they there was talk of how will we make decisions if we get too many people for our critical care units. Yes, um, and almost all the same conversation comes up. Um, now, in some cases, it's a necessary conversation. If you've got one ambulance and two patients, yes, you kind of have to make a call. So, but the question is, on what basis do you make a call? And if the only reason you're making a call is because they're not the right kind of person, from I mean, antisocial right. behaviour, for goodness' sake, <laughs> I think you and I might fall into that category. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> I think absolutely. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I, for you, I'm not sure about me, but you definitely. <laughs> this is from me visiting New Zealand three times. They obviously yeah. got me down, and we're bringing that antisocial guy back. We know so. about you, criminals. We all know. We know about what's going on in your country. No, yeah, we are. We're both in that boat. We've been in trouble. Yes, indeed. But I mean, and who decides? I mean, is it the key question? Who decides? Because um, a, a lot of the the so called politically correct. I mean, we're using that term a bit too loosely. But what's acceptable in the public sphere mm. at the moment comes down to who's imposing that particular view. I know that a lot of things are being sort of censured, and and some things are going through on um, Facebook, for example, right now, and Twitter. Uh, ironically. <laughs> President Trump's tweets started to get fact-checked recently and he threatened to shut it all down. There's a oh, kind of a tit for tat going on. It's hilarious. <laughs> but the um the the point I'm trying to make is that the, who's doing the checking? Like who's doing the censoring? Yes. Um, um yeah. I'm I'm a fairly strong advocate for freedom of speech as long as it's not inciting illegal behavior straight up. Um yeah. and that means that someone's going to say something that I don't like. It means someone's going to say some things that I even might find blasphemous or horrific. Yeah. But it's better that they say it and I have the capacity to answer it 
than they just yeah. say it in a secret forum. And and so in some respects, we need to be a bit careful about the freedom, protecting the freedoms which allow us to defend life too. Yes. Yeah, well, well and, and speak, speaking of that, I'd say you, you, one of them is speech, that's for sure. Um, and I'd say the second one actually that's quite important is the whole area of freedom of conscience. Yes. Uh, because once you destroy that, it's a very important human right. Here's the funny thing. The, people often don't connect that speech is very much an outworking of conscience. It's, uh, or it should be, I speak from my conscience. It's a practical outworking of what I think. And so yep. as freedom of conscience is eroded, and we see a lot of this now in the medical arena around some of these ethical issues, what you're doing is you're eroding the ability even to form, if you like, a defensive perimeter around the vulnerable uh, within yeah. the system. So what you're talking about there, let's get practical. What you're talking about is whether or not a doctor could say, I'm not going to do an abortion or I'm That's not right. going to I'm not going to do a euthanasia, which, by the way, is not just taking someone's life support off. Euthanasia is deliberately, actively pushing yes. someone's death with a lethal injection yeah. or something like that. Uh, there forcing medical people to do something because we've said it's okay that therefore every doctor has to do it kind of thing yes yeah. um now uh freedom of conscience i think is huge and it, it actually uh any imposition on that actually cuts to the heart of what we call our liberal democracy the whole idea that we're free to to individually pursue what we believe is right and true and good yes in terms of how we bring this back, let's bring this back to where we're going in terms of the parish life, local community, what I do in my workplace, how do I talk to my friends who aren't Catholic or aren't, aren't perhaps if they are Catholic, they're not pro-life. There's a lot of programs out there and structures. They don't seem to work. Like they don't seem to, to capture people's hearts and minds. How do we get out there? We've already talked about finding the gifts of local people and using them. What What would you say to someone who's just who doesn't feel gifted in the area of media or perhaps internet, what, what would you say to them about what's the basics? How do we go on and bring, build the culture of life? Well, a couple of things I'd say. Funny you should talk about conscience because one of the things that has eroded authentic freedom of conscience is this idea that conscience is just a private thing that has no public application. You know, it's okay for you to think you're opposed to abortion in your mind and maybe talk about it behind closed doors, but you're not to act in public. And that's that same thing affects the church, I think, where we think, well, let's just keep the stuff private. And the more we do that, the more that erodes the presence of truth in the world. So the first thing is, I think we've got to be active in some way, and we've got to be building a culture of life in some way. I think the second thing to to really consider is, and by the way, anyone who's thinking, well, I'm not very skilled at media engagement, Here's the, here's the truth of it. Most people are not. I've been training people for almost 15 years, and I can tell you, I can count on one hand the people that I know who just aced it right off the bat or who became very, very good at it. It is not something most people are qualified or skilled for, and that's okay. And, and it's really not where the real work of this is done. The media spokespeople are the, are the masthead, but the, but, but the actual ship that sits in the water and plows through the waves that's the ordinary lives of people that are lived. And so I would say the first thing is get some get some formation, get some good solid formation in these areas so you understand the issues and you understand the heart of the church's teaching on these issues. And then I would say, ask the question, what can I do to love more authentically in this area of the culture of life? Can, can I get a group of people together and, and maybe we form some sort of uh, support network for our local crisis pregnancy centre? We're going to get a parish working bee happening every uh, six months 
to fundraise for them or to do something for them? Or could we form a, a regular teaching session in our parish where once every two months we, we get in a speaker or we get together and we study, say, Evangelium Vitae, you know, the uh, uh, the gospel of life, uh, John Paul II's great encyclical from 1995. You know, can we, can we study these things together? So what can I do to actually begin to foster that culture? And so first of all, nurture it in your own life but then always be looking outwards as well. Because here's the thing, I, I, I really, I, my one of my big concerns, I'm an evangelist at heart. I used to be an evangelical. I was an evangelical church for 10 years. I used to be very <laughs> anti-Catholic, which is quite ironic now. Um, but but the thing is, my heart was always to for evangelism. And so I, I've seen evangelism and, and I understand it's, not just what it should be, but how powerful it is to the engine room of the church. If, if you're in a, a parish and you see people coming into the church and getting baptized, what it does is you realize, wow, we're not nutty. These people who are well outside the church, not cradle Catholics, they've seen the goodness, they've seen the beauty, they've seen the truth in this, and it, it really reinforces the faith and the, and the zeal in a parish. So we've got to be outward focused in this as well. That's essential, I believe. I think there's also how we receive people because I've heard a number of stories from people who've taken their first step in the door of a church and been put off. You know, someone's had a go at them for something. Like one lady spoke to me and said, I tried to come back to the Catholic Church 20 years ago. Now, admittedly, she was a fairly shaky first step into the church, but the, you know, the priest basically told her off for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Oh, and yeah, it was so yeah. grumpy about it that she just simply gave up and left and didn't yeah. come back. Or, or when she went to talk to a priest about the a divorce, um, she was spent very typically, as as is normal in these circumstances, you try and present your circumstances in a way that casts you in a good light. And the priest, uh, once again, called her out quite rudely on it. And yeah. um, and he was right, technically speaking, in terms of canon law, but, um, but it was unhelpful for her at that particular time. Now, I'm also guilty of, uh, of arguing with people and saying something that's just not the appropriate thing to say at that particular time. There's a certain amount of compassion, and I think you mentioned it before, listening that needs to happen at the beginning and non-judgment. So even if someone's been through hell, we should focus on how hard it was for them to go yeah. through that hell and how do we how do we talk about healing and forgiveness and, and love, which brings you back out of that hell uh, into somewhere where you can actually see things in a whole different light. Yeah, and I think too you've got to build that relationship that underpins that. I, I often yep. say to people, look, there's two types of persecution in this world. There's the persecution that's legitimate, you know, and, and then there's the stuff that you earn yourself and is not <laughs> legitimate, you know. And so I, you know, people say, oh, I went to a party, room full of strangers, and I yelled out, how about that awful abortion law? It's so evil. And then everyone <laughs> threw their cups at me. I was clearly doing the work of the Lord. Uh, you know, the world will hate you. They won't understand you. And I say, no, 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 you're just being an idiot. So that's yes. persecution yeah. for being an idiot. Don't be an idiot. Be, be loving, be, be rational, build the relationship. And then what that does is it opens the doors. And when those doors open, don't be afraid to have that conversation with people. Yeah, and, and to do it compassionately. And if, like St. Augustine says, no one wakes up in the morning and says, "Oh, what evil can I do today?" That's I'm right. paraphrasing, of course. But <laughs> yeah. um, he he um he said people do what they think is yeah. the best option available to them, and the yeah. only way you're going to change their behaviour is demonstrate to them with love and with providing mm -hmm. the option a better option, a better yes. way of doing it, and and convince them that this is in fact a much better way for them. It's not just well, what well, I well, think. And the, and the witness of your life. 
So yes. if, if, if they look at your life and you're saying, uh, you know, I'm all about the love and this is evil and this is wrong, but then you you do things that don't really respect the dignity of other people across the board, yep. or you live a life that doesn't really speak to the authenticity or the sincerity of that, people smell that faster than anything else. And, yes. and what my, my experience, I've had people who even still disagree with me, but they'll say to me, I respect the position you hold and because it's they've they've said you've been consistent in it and you yes. haven't actually been someone who's tried to pontificate down to me you've just disagreed robustly with me yep and look to i think people are okay i mean not maybe not in the media but people are okay with you holding a particular view mm. um it's when they feel judged when yeah. they are particularly mocked or maligned, when they're put down in a situation, that it becomes a massive problem for them. I, I mean, I, we've we've had lots of situations where someone who profoundly disagrees with us is able to have a quite a sensible conversation because it's done with care and with gentleness and with an acknowledgement of the concerns and experiences of the other person. Um, it doesn't mean you have to back down. As you said, you don't want to water it down to sound. You, no. I mean, if we find the magic message, which everyone seems happy with, most of the time that's because it doesn't say much. That's there's right. not actually much being said. We want, as you said at the start, uh, we want um, life to be something that people would never think of wanting to end. Yes. That it's, that it's right. such a joy and a, and a hope-filled thing. And that goes much broader than just the questions of, very specific laws or very specific stages of life, it comes to our hope in the world. I mean, a lot of people are talking about, you know, not wanting to bring children in the world because of the state yes. of the world. And that means that there's a genuine fearfulness there which we need to address. That comes down to hope. Yeah, that's right. And that's that's why we see the rise of things like the antinatalism. That you know, that, that it's a it's a movement. It's got a name, and there's some people now are trying to argue that they are helping the planet by doing that. Others are saying, like you say, uh, oh, it's just such an awful world, I could never do this. And and that to me is the greatest sign of that a culture has fallen into a pit of despair, effectively. Yeah. Not just a moment of panic or fear or difficulty, but a despair where you look at the world and you think. It's not even worth. I mean, probably even Schopenhauer might be a little bit shocked by you know. It's 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 almost that level of night. No, there's nothing worth existing for. <laughs> it's quite frightening. Well, and in many respects, sometimes um, the most pro-life thing you can do today is smile at the young mum who's struggling with her kids in the yeah. supermarket. Um, yes. Don't scowl at her, especially yeah. if they come to church. Don't scowl at the people in the church. You know, joyful. I mean, I make a yeah. point of going up to a young parents who who struggle with their kids through mass and say hey thanks for coming today really yeah. you did a great job and they go oh they were so bad I mean, no no you did a great job not your kids yes. don't reflect on you so the whole the whole point of it it might not be convenient for me it might not be what i want to have a kid screaming beside me but looking at the parents and saying it's a good thing what you're doing it's a wonderful thing and thank you for doing it well, well, I had a, I had an incident just like that actually just a, uh, a couple of months ago, where there was a lady beside us in church. She's there on her own with her two young boys, and one of them was just being really, really rambunctious and difficult. And she's on her knees. She's um, I'm pretty sure she's it's a catechumen at this stage, and she's she's struggling away. And and it's during the prayers of consecration. And she's no one else can see this. We're in the front row. She's quietly starting to tear up because she's so frustrated. And, and she doesn't know what to do. So I leaned over to her uh, when the, at the most appropriate moment and I just quietly said, can I help at all? 
And that was the thing she needed to hear. And then afterwards I said to her, look, um, well done, good on you. And she said to me, thank you so much because she said one of her big things was, uh, part of it was the the pressure to have to conform to keep everyone else around her in the church happy. Yes. You know? To be honest, I mean, a screaming child or a laughing child or a giggling child or a snorting child or whatever they're doing in mass is yeah. is the future of, of the church. I mean, and that's you know that's the sign that there's still life here and that we're still. Well, going it's what a, it's what a pro life church should sound like. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know? and we, we sometimes have this illusion of the old school churches. In fact, um, long ago they didn't even have pews; they had animals walking around. And it was That's just right. mayhem, <laughs> and and it was, the reason for the incense was to get rid of the smell. I mean, it's just yeah, that's, yeah. And there's a there's a whole sort of world that we're not really we've sanitised it. In no, some respect. no. A, a good day was when the when the the guy next to you didn't bring his horse, right? All oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's probably a good note to wrap up this week's <laughs> podcast. If today's discussion got you thinking or arguing with your podcast device, let us know. You can subscribe to the podcast at thiscatholiclife.com.au. Get, drop us a line, tell us what you liked or what we, you think we should talk about at info at thiscatholiclife.com.au. Continue our conversation on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Discord or any of the social medias and check the show notes on our website, especially for um, Brendan's uh, special work. And one of the things that he's doing at the moment is a show called Monday Night Live and you guys should check it out, not just because I've been on it, but because uh, all of his other guests are so impressive. And it's a really good to see an extended conversation between Christians about common sense approach to the world. Uh, and that's really important. Make sure you write us a review sometime, especially on iTunes. Get us out there because we're a uniquely Australian Catholic podcast and we think that local stuff is worth getting behind. And that's why I'm getting behind Brendan's as well. So tell your friends. And before we go, it's time for shout outs. So, Brendan. Oh, I'd, I'd, I guess I'd just love to shout out to all the Monday Night Live listeners who might be listening or the Left Foot Media people who might have tuned into this. Um, yeah, look, not only are you guys awesome, but I think, again, just to echo what Peter said, get behind podcasts like this. Uh, make sure you subscribe and check out the episodes that are coming. Yep. Uh, my shout out goes to all those pro-life people who've been trying so hard with all sorts of different ways and feel lost and frustrated. Um I hope nothing in what we've said today feels like it's disparaging you. We certainly didn't intend it to be that way. Just because a technique hasn't worked doesn't mean it's any less genuine or virtuous or or good. And even if it has worked, it doesn't mean it's perfect. So we're always about improving. And what we were talking about here is more about just getting it, you know, getting together and working together on a a really good uh, solution. All of us, I suspect, will have to do it in our own way. So more power to you well done on all of you and especially we wish that kind of grace of god which gives you the patience and love to continue living out that ministry so good on you that's all for now thank you for listening to this catholic life